The Akar and Coca Report, episode number 27. Welcome to the Akkad & Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the Akkad & Coca Report. I'm Michelle Akkad in San Francisco, and with me is my co-host Anish Coca in Philadelphia. As always, you will be able to find links to the documents and items we discussed during the episode on our show notes at accountandcoca.com. And if you find our show informative and engaging, please subscribe to it on your favorite podcast app or on our YouTube channel. And if you could rate us on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it as well. Our topic today is coronary heart disease, one of the most common forms of cardiovascular disease affecting men and women in developed countries, yet one that remains shrouded in mystery as to its causes and natural history. Our guest, who will help us shed light on the matter, is a medical sociologist and historian. Dr. William Rothstein is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Maryland. He is an accomplished scholar who holds a Bachelor of Science from MIT and a PhD from Cornell University. He is the author of several peer-reviewed books, including American Physicians in the 19th Century, from Sect to Science, published in 1972, American Medical Schools and the Practice of Medicine, a History, published in 1987, Public Health and the Risk Factor, a History of an Uneven Medical Revolution, published in 2003, and most recently, The Coronary Heart Disease Pandemic of the 20th Century, Emergence and Decline in Advanced Countries, published this year by CRC Press. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're, we're delighted to have you. And before I turn it over to you to tell us about your book, I would like to actually talk myself a little bit um, and, and, and give my intellectual journey as, you know, that led me to discover your work. Because I think in doing so, it will provide uh, the audience with um, um, a helpful context for a discussion about your book. So, so let me start by, by first saying that when I was in medical, uh, actually in residency in Houston, I trained at the uh, University of Texas. Uh, I did my internal medicine residency, residency there. Um, I had the immense privilege of uh, learning uh, under uh, Herbert Fred, who, who became my mentor and, and remains my mentor to this day. I, I'm still in touch with him. He just retired um, a year ago. But he was, um, uh, he was my teacher there. He is, uh, I consider him to be a giant of medical education. And, uh, and he is recognized as such. And uh, at the time, he, was, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of, of disease. But he is very, very keenly in tune with the natural history of each disease. And, and the way things present and manifest and, and um, he, he was really not interested in, in, in therapies and interventions because for him, the most important thing was to, to have an understanding of how disease develops in each person and, and the various presentation that it may have. And, and he was able to teach us you know, principles of clinical evaluation that incorporated that, that knowledge to the, to the extent that we could have it. But he, he lamented the fact that 
in our current practice of medicine, we are so keen on intervening immediately from the get-go on any minor abnormality. And it would infuriate him, for example, when as residents, you know, our pager would go off and it would, you know, typically be a nurse calling us and saying, you know, doctor or intern, whatever, patient so-and-so, blood pressure is 160 or, you know, a little bit elevated. And then we would immediately jump and give an order to treat the blood pressure to reduce it. And, and it drove him mad because it, it reflected such a poor understanding of the natural history of things. Uh, I mean, he, he was not a therapeutic nihilist, you know, but, but he just, he wanted us to, to think about things before we, we acted. So I was, that stayed with me for, for a long time, his sort of, his appreciation, he sensitized me to the importance of the natural history of, of, uh, of condition and diseases. Then I left um, Houston and I came to San Francisco to do, to do my cardiology fellowship at UCSF. And uh, I worked in a basic science laboratory and my work was successful. Um, I was working with um, mice uh, models. They were genetically modified mice. It was very, uh, very much in fashion at the time. We're talking here about the late 1990s. Uh, um, uh, modeling, you know, so... Uh, they were engineered to have uh, severe disorder, disorders of cholesterol me metabolism, and they would develop atherosclerotic plaque. So I had, you know, mutant mices, and I was, you know, characterizing them and, and, and that sort of thing. And it was very successful. But at the same time, I knew, you know, uh, in my heart that we were not learning anything of any relevance to human beings and to what coronary disease in real patients is about. I mean, it was really a very artificial model and, and, you know, I had at the time I, 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 I had the chance to read about coronary disease. I was interested in it. And I knew that it had, you know, a, a very strong environmental component or, or a component that, you know, could not simply be genetic just because I knew that it had sort of become very common at some point in the 20th century and that sort of thing. And, and, and so my research, you know, was, was successful, but I knew it, I, it seemed to me that it was not, not really relevant and um and there was something missing to our understanding of um uh, of coronary disease and and i i was a little bit skeptical of of what i was hearing from um uh from, from the mainstream at some point we had the visit in our laboratory of um uh, a professor of medicine who was very very prominent uh, at the time scott grundy he was essentially uh, mr cholesterol if you will, uh, succeeding Ansel Keys, uh, he became, Scott Grundy was president of the AHA at some point, a very important guy. And I, I wanted to chat with him and I chatted with him about, uh, you know, the French paradox, which uh, I think people are familiar with. It's, it's this notion that the French, you know, seems to have a relatively low rate of, of uh, coronary disease, despite the fact that their um, diet seems to be rich in, in saturated fat and so forth. So they seem to be contrary to, to the dogma. And one of the, um, one of the explanations was the red wine hypothesis that maybe red wine was protective. And, and to me, I thought I lived in France, uh, when I was in high school and I thought that perhaps an alternative, <laughs> alternative explanation, at least that one that amused me was that the French paradox could be explained not by the, by the red wine, which, you know, other countries, you know, other countries drink uh, wine and so forth, but maybe it was explained by the, the French cheeses, which is really particular to, to France. I mean, they have these cheeses with a lot of molds and things like that. And, and I thought, you know, maybe that's uh, an explanation for the French paradox. And I, and I, um, I, I um, 
bounced that idea off of Scott Grundy and he dismissed it immediately. He said, no, no, no. And in fact, he even dismissed the existence of the French paradox. And he said, you know, that the French, if you, if you look at it, the ones that eat more saturated fat have more coronary disease. And so he was sticking to the, to the party line, so to speak. But, but I was not, you know, too satisfied with his, his explanation. Later in my clinical training, I um, um, attended a lecture by another uh, academic cardiologist, cardiologist, David Faxon, who briefly mentioned in the lecture that he gave, it was on coronary disease, he briefly mentioned the, the Maasai of Africa. I don't know um, if you know about, about the Maasai of Africa, but they're a tribe uh, in Kenya um, that has been described, or was described in the 1960s because they have a, very, a diet very rich in saturated fat. They eat essentially most of the year, the, most, their diet is uh, the milk from, from the cow that they herd, their herders, and, and it's very, very fatty milk, you know, 6% saturated fat milk, and then the rest of the time they eat meat. So, so their diet is, is very high in saturated fat, yet their coronary mortality is very, very low. And, and that struck me as, as being, you know, interesting. And, um, and after I, when I was completing my fellowship, I got in touch with uh, George Mann, who by then had retired. And George V. Mann was uh, one of the um, early Framingham investigators um, who, who left the Framingham group early on and then went to Africa. And he, he was the one who had worked on the Maasai, uh, or at least he was among the ones who had worked on the Maasai. And we had a, ni a nice exchange of emails at the time. But... Uh, nothing came of it from my perspective because I left my I finished my fellowship and I decided to to go into regular clinical practice and um, and I didn't pursue any uh, scholarly work uh, at the time but I started practicing medicine and then when I practiced uh, medicine in different contexts I was you know like many doctors kind of uh, um, annoyed and I was unprepared in my clinical training, unprepared by, uh, to the fact that medicine is practiced in such a uh, assembly line, industrial uh, process. And uh, that kind of bothered me. And, and not only that, but it seemed to me that the science that we were getting from the academic centers about how to treat various things, whether it's hypertension or coronary disease or cholesterol or whatnot, really it was a science that was itself um, conducive for this kind of uh, population-based uh, approach where, you know, the individuals are blended into a, a bigger mass of, of people according to risk factors and, and that sort of thing. And that, um, you know, uh, sort of interested me. And, and I started to write. I wasn't, I started to blog. Essentially, I, I started a blog and I started writing some reflections on, on all these considerations that I was um, encountering, uh, having to do with how we managed uh, risk factors. And, and that was a, a very much a departure from what I had been sensitized to by Dr. Fred when I was a trainee, you know, with his careful attention to the natural history of things. So I was writing, you know, reading and writing blog posts and, uh, and so forth. And then at some point after I had collected a series of blog posts, I went to Houston one time and I met with, uh, with my old mentor and I shared with him some of these things that I was writing. And he told me, he said, you know, these are interesting. 
you know, we should try to publish them to, you know, perhaps I can help you. He's a fantastic writer. And he, so he taught me and he continues to teach me how to write. And so, so he said, why don't we write a few of these uh, things together and, and submit them for, you know, maybe at little pieces in medical journals. And, and we did, we did, we published a, a few things on hypertension, on, on the use of, of statin for cholesterol management, that sort of thing. And then at some point I wanted to write about the concept of the risk factor, which to me was, uh, I, I could recognize that it had become a very, very uh, pervasive and important idea in medicine that seemed to be coming out of nowhere. Uh, but it was dominating our entire thinking. You know, everything was about risk factors and how to manage risk factors and, and that sort of thing. And, and risk factors, to me, had, you know, little to do with the natural history of diseases and so forth. So I wanted to write an editorial with, uh, with uh, Herb Fred. But what I, I, I wanted to see what had been written about the concept of the risk factor. And, and I couldn't find it in the medical literature because all the papers talked about risk factors without, you know, taking it for granted. And, and there was no getting to the bottom of where that concept emerged from. So I went to the UCSF library. And I went to their book catalog and said, perhaps there's a book that just talks about risk factors. So I put the key words, risk factors, and there's only one book that came up, and that was your book, Bill. <laughs> that, so that's what brought me to you. It's your, your book from 2003, which is uh, entitled Public Health and the Risk Factor, The History of an Uneven Medical Revolution. So I knew immediately that that was what I was looking for. And, and your book, uh, I, I looked it up, and I, I, I read it, and I, I found it fantastic, and I cited it in my little editorial that I wrote on risk factors. And your book was very well reviewed by in, in the New England Journal of Medicine at the time. And, uh, and, and it has really, really, it's an outstanding work. And I think we'll be talking about, about that shortly when I, when I turn over the microphone to you. But, but basically, this is my, my story that led me to you. And then now, Anish and I launched this podcast, and I thought I would... Um, I would invite you, and so I sent you an email, and you kindly replied, and then you told me that you had just published this other book on the coronary heart disease pandemic, which is, you know, fantastic, and we're very delighted to th that you've done that, and so here we are. So I'm sorry about, you know, taking so much of the time uh, before I let you uh, uh, speak, Bill, but I wanted to give a little bit of the context here to the audience uh, about uh, our relationship, and... And so, Bill, you've written this book on the pandemic um, of coronary disease, and I think you have an alternative view. So you've researched carefully. It's, this is a very, it's a very methodical book. You, you go to primary sources of, of the epidemic of coronary disease. And what, what do you want to tell us about it? So you wanna, can, you, can you start with a little, um, you know, a few minutes to tell us what you, the main thesis of your book is? All right, first I want to say that my campus is the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Like the University of California, there are a number of campuses in Maryland. And I want to just make clear that um, that's mine. Now, I want to start by saying how I got interested in the risk factor very briefly. A friend of mine, I just work on the history of the medical profession. That was my main interest. And somebody, you know, had written a book about the role of the life insurance industry in medicine. And I thought, that's a very interesting subject. Uh, because early in the century, life insurance companies employed physicians to examine applicants for policy. So uh, there was a lot of knowledge going from the life insurance industry 
to the average physician in the street, not just classes, because I suspect that in the first half of the century, practically every physician is a young man um, at work for a life insurance company at some time, uh, just to pick up a few bucks. And um, as I got into it, I discovered that they discovered the risk factor and they told their life insurance examiners, look, when you examine a policy of an applicant for a policy, you tell us his blood pressure, you tell us his build, you tell us. And that's how physicians learned about the kind of about risk factors in medicine. That's amazing. That's that's in you describe this in your your book uh, on the risk factor from 2003, and we'll link to that book uh, in on our show notes. But this is really amazing because I don't think people realize that that you're absolutely right that it is the life insurance companies that even taught doctors how to take the blood pressure when the first mm. blood pressure you know sphygmo, sphygmo manometers came you know were invented. There was no interest in the medical community about, you know, having one in their clinic because you know they didn't know what to do about it. So it's really the life insurance industry that uh, that taught doctors how to measure the blood pressure. And in and, and the, the meetings of the medical directors of life insurance companies, one medical director said, "We're going to have every physician take blood pressure readings to teach them how to do it." That's right. how primitive it was in the medical profession. Correct. And, <laughs> and the life insurance industry settled the question about whether a high blood pressure is beneficial or harmful, because that right. was controversial in medical circles, you know, since the, 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 the late 19th century and people had, you know, very strong opinions one way or another, but they couldn't settle the, uh, the question and, and it required the accumulation of, uh, you know, a lot of data and long-term follow-up, which is what the life insurance industry did for its own business purposes right they collected however the, the, yeah. the only thing they didn't do they were not interested in a level that you would call hypertension they were interested in a gradient all right because they were not dealing with individual policy holders and the higher the worse that was their attitude and so if you read the early literature including the medical literature on high blood pressure, they do not specify a level that's hypertension. That took right. a long time to work out. Do you know if they if they essentially adjusted the premiums in a greater yeah. fashion? So the, the higher the blood pressure, the, the, the higher the premium would be? That sort well, of we have to realize the life insurance company does not want to deny you a policy. Right. If they can, they'd like you to sell a, buy a policy at a higher premium. Mm -hmm. So all these risk factors were put into formulas in which they elevated the premium depending on the level of your risk factors. And from your, your perspective as a policy, at least you got a policy, right? Right, right. So um, they were thinking of gradients, never as dichotomies here. Right, right. Unlike the medical community, at least the public health, uh, the medical community to the extent that it's acting in a, public health capacity where they want doctors to act uh, based on a certain threshold and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the first um, studies of uh, medication for high blood pressure in America were done at Veterans Administration hospitals. And um, they identified people with what they call malignant hypertension. Extreme, mm -hmm. And they had extremely high mortality rates. And they benefited immediately from antihypertensive medication. Right. And so 
and they were so really that was the great change it was these malignant hypertension people because it was so easy to see that they hadn't dropped dead in two years as, as you would have expected them to do right good so by the so, way yeah go ahead he did not have a, a high opinion of physicians <laughs> the guy who did that study <laughs> 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 the uh you're talking about the medical director of the uh, uh well he was a physician with the VA and oh, he said and he said that given how bad the therapies were before anti hyper uh medication the best physicians did absolutely nothing about it right, right. <laughs> so so bill so you got interested in the risk factor uh from that angle uh because you were uh, sensitized to the the influence of the life insurance industry on medical practice, which, as a sociologist, you know, was uh, was something you know uh, of interest to you. And uh, and your 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 book, which is uh, you know the first book on on the risk factor, is just fantastic. I mean, it, it's a big historical book. But what I remember getting out of it, at least, there was one nugget in there that uh, really caught my attention and and that I used in my um, in the editorial that uh, her friend and I wrote in 2010 about risk factors, um, was that when you examine the, uh, the 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 records of the life insurance industry, you see that um, there's a, a decline in the in the uh, coronary disease mortality even before the risk factors uh, you know start to catch the awareness of the medical community, which really happens. In the late 1950s, with the Framingham investigators and, and that sort of thing, uh, and and it seems that that's that strand of thought in that first book becomes you develop it more in in your current book, which is really on the coronary heart disease pandemic. Is that? I would just. Is that I fair? would just. Uh, yes, I would just say though that the some of the people on the framingham study the original one had worked for the life insurance industry and they were the ones who brought the risk factor into the framingham study correct the the the, the concept of it uh, for sure the, that's right. exactly right so, so tell but, us i'm sorry go ahead so that um when i saw as you described that there was a real curve in in chd mortality uh, of course, I had to pursue that issue further, and that's what led to the newest book. Okay. Tell us about this new book, The, the Coronary uh, Heart Disease Pandemic, and use the term pandemic and not epidemic, and, and I think that's important in the book. All right. Now, I'm just going to describe my evidence that it was a pandemic. I'm not going to talk about causes or implications. Mm -hmm. We can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I did was to try and find out what the characteristics were of pandemics generally. And um, I found nothing in epidemiology textbooks. And looking at them, I, I decided there were three characteristics. One is a rapid rise and fall of mortality rates in multiple countries. Two, and uh, some population groups experience greater increases and decreases than other groups. And third, there are geographic variations in mortality in every pandemic. Going back to the great pan, great um, Black Plague pandemic, they noticed geographic variations then. 
All right, so applying that to coronary heart disease, if you take the rise and fall of mortality rates, um, they rose in the 30s and 40s in the U.S., Canada, Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, peaked in the 50s and 60s, and have decreased in every one of these countries after the, about 1970. Every one of them, without exception. Mm-hmm. And the famous Monica study found that the decrease was almost l- very largely fewer new cases of the disease, not higher survival rates of those with the disease. Second, the population groups most affected. And um, in every country, there are greater increases in mortality rates among men than women during the rise of the pandemic greater decreases in mortality rates among men than women in the decline of the pandemic. Geographic variations. If you look by continent, the peak mortality rates were higher in the U.S. and Canada and lower in Western Europe. The peak period in the U.S. and Canada was 50 to 70. The peak period in Europe was 50 to 80. Within continents, in the U.S., the peak rates were highest in New England and the mid-Atlantic states. There was no area with the lowest rates, just enormous sections of the country. Mm-hmm. In Europe, the peak mortality rates were highest in Northern Europe, the lowest in Southern Europe. And there are four countries that had similarly low rates, France, Switzerland, Spain, and Italy. And they talk about this French stuff all the time, but... In fact, Switzerland had the same pattern of the pandemic than France, as France. Now, the countries that did not experience the pandemic, somebody did a very nice study of Latin America, the largest countries in Latin America, around 1990-2000, and there was no evidence of pandemic. Eastern Europe, I looked at WHO data for the Eastern Europe and the former Soviet republics. I could find no evidence of one but a good friend claims that you cannot trust those data. And um, so you couldn't say one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find data for Africa or Asia. Um, so I couldn't say anything about that. Okay. And that's the pandemic. So pandemic, rapid rise and, and rapid decline um, in mortality. Um, a, a difference in who's affected. But right. but when you say rapid rise and rapid decline, we're still talking about uh, compared to a context of background incidents before the pandemic and then after the pandemic. Is that right? So that's correct. So so coronary disease has been described. You know, angina was described in the 17th century or 18th century, um, and and it's existed. And we have now we have you know Egyptian mummies that have evidence of atherosclerosis and and that sort of thing. So. So, so it's not something completely new, but what was new was this just rapid, you know, sort of massive rise. And, and uh, what, what you seem to say is a, is a relatively rapid decline also um, of incidence of, of coronary disease with a peculiar, uh, some peculiarities in that it, it affected, the pandemic affected men more than women, and then certain geographic areas were affected and others seemed to be spared. Um, I would say, you know, I think the geographic aspect is the best evidence for a pandemic because all pandemics tend to be geographic. They just don't occur. If it occurred to an equal extent in every country of the world, you would say to me, you should say to me, 
you got to be kidding. That could never happen. Right. Um, so, um, so I like, I like the geographic dimension is showing that there was a cause and the cause was more severe in some parts of the world than other. Right. Okay. So Dr. Ross, what's the, could you enlighten, enlighten us on what the, um, uh, what the, I mean, you're, you're, you're taking great pains to, uh, you know, d- uh, say that this was a pandemic. What, what, what is the prognostic importance of getting that right, whether it's a pandemic or not? Well, the question is, for example, the statins, okay, which are used for primary prevention. The statins became popular 30 years after the decline of the pandemic began. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that raises real doubts in my mind as to whether, as in primary prevention, it's of any value. Then the other then to take another example, um, everybody talks about diet and coronary heart disease. I cannot believe all those countries change their diets in the same way uh, to cause the rise of the pandemic and change their diets in the same way to cause the decline of the pandemic. It's just inconceivable. Right. So, so let's um, uh, let's develop that point a little bit. So, the pandemic begins in the 1920s and and 30s. Well, 30s and 40s. The 30s and 40s. Right. Okay. And you know, f- the 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 usual uh, explanation uh, that I remember, you know, is well, you know, by then, you know, the most common cause of of death was uh, infectious disease. Uh, by then, tuberculosis was, was on the decline, and so forth. And it, it's sort of a, a natural um, uh, new stage. Where you have, you know, of being a rich country. In a rich country, then you have, you know, uh, pandemics of coronary disease. You know, coronary disease emerging as uh, the illness of of uh, of being rich. Right uh, now, it, it's. That doesn't hold uh, if if you actually think of it as a pandemic. Is that would you say that's well, correct? You have to, what are you going to do about the decline? There's no evidence of reversals in any of these factors in a rich country that could possibly right. explain the decline. I want to give you just one more piece of data to show you how severe it was. I have um, percentage of all deaths caused by coronary heart disease for white men, fifty-five, sixty-four. In 1940, 15% of all deaths were due to coronary heart disease. 1960, and this is 1970, 41% were due to coronary heart disease. 2010, 18% were due to coronary heart disease. Okay. If you look at white men, 65, 74, it's exactly the same. Now, that's an unbelievably dramatic increase and decrease in percentage of deaths from coronary heart disease. And you can see why physicians in 1950 and 60 were so horrified at what was going on, right? Right. I guess there, there's a lot of, um, I mean, there are a fair number of, there's so many uh, confounders uh, there, uh, meaning how do you, um, why is it not, why is it not possible that, uh, you know the uh, that you know. How do you not correlate this with, say, a, a wider understanding that smoking uh, was was bad, and that that overall the rates of smoking amongst a certain demographic well, started to go down, or the fact that exercise started to get you know much more 
in vogue starting from the, I don't know, the seventies or well, whatnot, or the fact think- that stents came out, you know, you had stents that may have impact, you know, st- the stents uh, being used for primary AMI, uh, helping to reduce, uh, uh, the uh, mortality for uh, folks with coronary disease. Now, all of these things didn't come out at the exact same time. Um, but, you know, I mean, I just off the top of the head listed three or four. Oh, and, well, mm-hmm. oh, well, let me take two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, one is, I told you that the, the evidence is it's fewer new cases, not longer survival rates of people with the disease, so the stents could not have been a major factor. Second, smoking rates in the U.S. began to decline after 19. What I did was use um, lung cancer mortality rates, okay, as evidence of the effects of smoking. And lung cancer mortality rates in the U.S. began to decline after 1990, 20 years after the beginning of the decline in coronary heart disease mortality rates. 20 years is a long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, maybe the mortality declined. Uh, how does that relate to whether, you know, use of chemotherapy for lung cancer? Um, meaning, you, know, uh, you see that, I mean. Well, and, but if you, if you look at smoking, mm-hmm. cigarette smoking per year, it was in the late 1980s that those number of cigarettes per person began to decrease. Right, right, right. So, so you're, you're showing, I think, in certain subgroups, in in uh, that uh, mortality peaks in, uh, for coronary disease uh, in certain subgroups, even in the 1950s. Is that correct? No. Oh, well, no. no. Or, Actually, it was the other way around. If you look at blacks in the U.S., they had lower mortality rates than whites in 1950, and they increased more in 1970 than the whites did. The pandemic occurred somewhat later for the blacks in the U.S. than it did. Well, what, what, one other one other question. Uh, so, the, the, you know, there's there's a bunch of different things that happen that are a bunch of different confounders, of course, that always that always complicate trying to figure out trying to trying to trying to get away from correlation to cause. But what about what about the um, what about? I mean, are you moved by the? You'd mentioned statins, um, and ha- are you moved by the uh, by their use in the folks with familial hypercholesterolemia? You know, the um, in terms of uh, the pathogenesis of chole- serum cholesterol, whether how that serum cholesterol got there and how it relates to diet is, of course, you know, quite uh, uh, you know uh, is is a, is a link that, of course, is uh, seems to be a, quite a moving target, but. But regardless, it would seem like having very high levels of serum cholesterol um, seems to result in plaque deposition. Um, that link appears to be true in folks that have familial hypercholesterolemia. You brought up the point that, well, how do we know whether the same, whether statins may be effective in folk, for primary prevention? Um, are you saying that it's not believable or there is enough evidence to suggest that you know, folks with high levels of serum cholesterol are at higher risk for atherosclerotic plaque formation? No, I'm just, uh, I think everybody agrees the stands are very useful in secondary prevention. And there was a study that just came out this week, either JAM or the New England Journal, that looked at stands in diabetics and people with mm-hmm. uh, without uh, diabetes, and they found that the statins were beneficial in people with diabetes, but not 
in people who didn't have the problem. Yeah. So, so I guess I'll just, I mean, you know, one of the largest analyses or one of the largest, or the, one of the groups that puts out this stuff is the cholesterol trialists uh, collaboration, the CTT group. And um, I mean, it would appear to be that even for primary prevention, um, you do see a drop in, in, you know, cardiovascular events. Um, now it's not as big of a drop. So there, so, you know, it's much larger trials pooling. You've got a pool pooled, uh, you know, very large numbers of folks to, to show it, but certainly it looks like, except for patients that are on dialysis, um, outside of that, um, the relative risk reductions for cardiovascular event reduction seems to, you know, there seems to be one for folks uh, who haven't had an event yet. And how does that make sense anyway? Meaning, meaning obviously there's some group of us that are sitting around there. There's a, there's a, you know, there's a residual, there's a, some, there's some folks that ultimately who, you know, one day don't have, have, don't have a heart attack and the next day have a heart attack. Does it stand to reason that if we figured out who that person was, that we could treat that individual the day, you know, obviously not the day before they had the heart attack, but if we could identify, identify these groups of people that are going to have a heart attack, that uh, treating them with statins would be beneficial? All right. This is the great debate between the life insurance approach and the clinical medicine approach, <laughs> right? Yeah. The life insurance company ought to give a damn which of their policies hold it by name. It's the number who die that they're interested in, right? Right. They take a probabilistic approach to the whole thing. And the poor clinician has to be concerned with individual patients, right? Right. Now, the other thing is that if mortality rates began to decline in the U.S. in 1970, let's say, and we say risk factors were important, they had to start declining in the, around 55 or 60, right? To produce a decline in mortality rates in 1970. Yeah, but right. No, that's true. Yeah, but no, maybe, I think that's a very right. That's that's it's, it's a good point. But but what about the latency of you know if 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 the if the ills of tobacco started to you know started to become obvious in the 1960s? I don't know when exactly they became obvious, but you know there's some time period. It's not that the moment you stop smoking, you're gonna have uh, you're gonna have you know mortality reduction CV events. It's probably gonna take five, ten, fifteen years. I think. I mean, the single biggest thing we've done in terms of uh, most high, highest yield thing we've done in terms of reducing cardiovascular mortality clearly to me seems to be stents in people that are having a heart attack where you have, you know, I mean, over and over again, and Michelle does this when he's on call. If he takes 50 year olds that are about to die and uh, he. Yeah. But that, I, I think, I think we, we need to clarify something here, Anish, because that's not, um, I don't think Bill is implying that the, the stents don't reduce mortality. No, 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 no. I'm saying, I'm saying that, that, I mean, Grunzig, Grunzig was, you know, 1970, what was that? 1978 or something like that. Uh, Debusk, Debusk, the first angioplasty. Right. That was angioplasty for stable angina. And then I think uh, the first the first time it started to get used was in the early 1980s. And clearly that seems like used, you know, scaling that to, you know, have having a cath lab within 90 minutes anywhere in the United States or in advanced countries would see, I mean, it seems hard to believe that that does not, that has not had any reduction, that has not resulted in a reduction in overall CV uh, mortality. You know, so when we see that, beautiful trend line that we see from the CDC in terms of declining cardiovascular mortality. Um, how no, do actually, I disagree, Anish, because I yeah. think, I mean, precisely, I think if you look at the trend lines, they're very monotonous. I mean, the decline in mortality is very, very monotonous, and you don't see at some point sort of a, 
a sharp drop, you know, a further drop in decline with, for example, the introduction of statins or with the introduction of, of uh, uh, androplasty and that sort of thing. I mean, I, if you look at the trends in general, it's, uh, correct me, uh, Bill, if I'm wrong, but it seems that the, uh, you know, the decline, now, of course, you have, the, the, you have to stratify by age and, and that sort of thing. And, and now the population is much older now than it was 30 years ago or 40 years ago. So there's that factor. I, I think what Bill is pointing to yeah. is, is the, the fact that there was, there was some background coronary disease in the 19, you know, in the 19th century right. and early 20th century. All of a sudden, it became very, very rapid, you know, uh, extremely prevalent in relatively younger people and men more than women, and, and that prevalence increased in a bunch of countries at the same time. You know, a whole right, bunch right. of countries, very far. And it's hard to explain this according to, you know, the traditional explanations of lifestyle uh, and, and that sort of thing. You know, that, that it's, I mean, that's, I'm not saying that's, and the, so the, the two are not incompatible. I mean, of course, on a given patient, doing a stent in somebody in the midst of a heart attack can deflect the mortality of that person, but mm -hmm. that doesn't contradict, I think, what Bill's thesis, you know, observation is that that um, uh, the decline in coronary mortality uh, either coincides or, or maybe sometimes even precedes the decline in the most commonly acknowledged risk factors. All right, I agree. Well, let me give you what coronary heart disease is like today. Yeah. If you take the percentage of all coronary heart disease, ischemic heart disease deaths, at age 75 or over, mm -hmm. okay, in 2010. Among white men, 56% occurred to people ages 75 and over. Among white women, 79% occurred to people ages 75 or over, slightly lower rates for the black. And if you take 85 and over, this is just unbelievable. Among white men, 29% of coronary heart disease deaths occurred to men 85 and over among women 53 percent occur to women ages 85 and over fifth half of all coronary heart disease deaths are my of white women are at ages 85 and older i don't think that's a public health crisis in my opinion <laughs> yeah so so correct i i agree with you i agree with you and 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 it seems to be, I mean, I think what I would say is that it's, we're, we're dealing with a different beast right now when we're dealing with our run-of-the-mill coronary disease today in 2018. It's not necessarily the same as what, you know, so what was what, happening back in the 20th century in the... In, in the so what did, so what, uh, Dr. Austin, I, mean, I think you've written, uh, tell us in your own words, what, what is, uh, what, what do you think uh, was behind uh, well, the Well, I think... The pandemic had a different cause than coronary heart disease in normal times. What the cause was, I have no idea. But it spread around the world at the same time. I think that's the crucial part. It didn't occur 30 years later in France than it did in America. It's the same time. Declined around the same time in all these countries. So it says to me, it has to be the same cause everywhere. And something happened. Um, to modify that cause. Right. Now, the interesting thing would be, is it popping up somewhere else, right? 
And I showed you, I this guy did this excellent study of the largest countries in Latin America in around 2000. And if it was popping up somewhere else, I would suspect that you'd see an increase in Latin American coronary heart disease deaths at the turn of the 21st century. That did not happen. Well, the public health guys will uh, claim this as a victory. <laughs> right. They, they've, they've cured the pandemic with... <laughs> with, their, with, their, with the food pyramid, obviously. The one are supposed to eat lots of cereal. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. And uh, to, to that point, I mean, the, the, uh, you know, another risk factors we, we hear about a lot now is diabetes and, and obesity. And obesity rates have, have risen uh, since the 1980s, supposedly yes. you know, dramatic levels uh, in, so that, that, in our country. That's why most enjoyable comment obesity levels are going up and coronary heart disease mortality rates are going down right right, right. yeah yeah that's <laughs> right so that, that doesn't um compute now the people will say well you know it's it's around the corner that we're going to have a massive uh, influx of, of coronary disease but we haven't seen it yet um, no. now well, it, you I know mean, if 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 it if it if it uh if it comes to be if in five years there's uh, all of a sudden a lot more you know uh uh, coronary disease mortality, perhaps we'll we'll have to revi revisit. But I think that's that's uh, that's an important point. And and, and the well, I think is I think it's unlikely because the obesity rates have been rising for so long that their effect, in my opinion, should be appearing now. By now, right? Right. 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 Well, well, there's we, we can't we we can't we can't not mention um, <laughs> there's always an answer from uh, the public health folks. So. We can't. We got to mention the the obesity paradox that has been posited, right? That obesity may be uh, may be uh, uh, protective. Um, <laughs> the life insurance industry doesn't agree with that, <laughs> <laughs> and they have you know hundreds of thousands of policyholders. We're not talking about these silly samples in the medical journals, and right. some of their studies have millions of policyholders. You got to believe that data. Right. Right. <laughs> So you know, if I if I uh, if I can put what you're uh, Bill, what you're saying in perspective, is that uh, you know in the 1930s and 40s you have the beginning of this pandemic of coronary disease that really takes off in a major way, and then starts to decline uh, in the 60s and 70s and continues to decline. We as clinician, you know, have identified a few things and we're doing them and we think we're doing the right thing and. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't continue to do what we're doing, but we are doing all these things. And whether it's having any impact on the pandemic or not, I mean, it seems to be, you know, uh, a different question altogether. And perhaps it has an impact on, you know, in certain cases on, on certain people. But, but there's sort of this parallel movement between what the pandemic is doing on its own. And we clearly don't fully understand it because the causes and the risk factors that we, we we use to explain that pandemic don't seem to, at least from a uh, sequence perspective, doesn't seem to match with the natural history of this pandemic. Uh, so the pandemic is is proceeding, and here we are doing our own things, and and we do, and <laughs> and uh, and that, and that's what's um, what's happening. On the other hand, except that perhaps one can make the point that we're we're wasting resources and and they should be redirected. Um, in a different way. Um, All right, now, let me tell you, 
my argument is that we live in a world today of non-pandemic coronary heart disease rate. We're talking about 15% of deaths. To, and you saw the age distribution. It was shocking. I mean, these are really old people. Right. Now, the problem was these risk factors were identified during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So my argument is the risk factors are for a different disease than we have now. Right. Right. We do have, I mean, the pandemic is not complete. I mean, I would say the pandemic is maybe on its, uh, it's the tail end of it, but um, I mean, I still do from time to time have, you know, the occasional young man without, you know, who's not a smoker, doesn't have a terrible cholesterol, you know, seemingly reasonable diet, active and whatnot, who either drops dead or has a heart attack and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so, but, but you're saying is that cases like this are sort of, on the decline. Right. Well, obviously. Right. Yes. I mean, if you look at the age distribution right. of deaths. Uh... Right. Well, it's going to be very hard uh, as we move forward. We're so connected now um, that, you know, <laughs> the, as soon as one woman starts using jade eggs in uh, California, you know, the next day, <laughs> some woman in, in France is also using jade eggs because of Instagram and uh, Facebook and, and whatnot. So, uh, so, you know, in terms of, the idea that um, um, we're not all kind of walking in lockstep and why should the United States be very similar to, uh, you know, uh, France uh, or Britain or whatnot. Um, certainly as we get more and more connected, it seems like we will all either, you know, rise together or fall together. I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go back, though, and talk about the unbelievably shoddy research that led to this emphasis on food. You know, the original study on the effect of diet and coronary heart disease uses the Mediterranean diet. That used Spain and Italy as the evidence for the Mediterranean. Very good. But France and Switzerland had the same mortality rates as Spain and Italy. Now, you can't do that. If a graduate, <laughs> an undergraduate. In the on the Mediterranean. <laughs> <laughs> If an undergraduate student came in with a paper like that, I said, you got to get other countries. You can't just look at those two. And I think that's become clear, you know, from, uh, you know, the the writings of many people in the last few years, that that, that whole uh, lipid diet hypothesis uh, was uh, prematurely uh, advanced um, um, as an explanation for the coronary disease pandemic. But the problem is, is that it seems like any nutritional, (laughs) any any nutritional (laughs) hypothesis is problematic. But so what, but so what, so I, wait, asked, I agree with you completely about that. <laughs> that. The relationship between diet and except for diabetes, I'm willing to take diabetes and sugar. Okay. But for, I think it's just grossly over-exaggerated. Right. The, that diet. Can I, can I ask how, how you would suggest, so, you know, there's risk factor medicine, which I mean, I honestly, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, how, how do we get beyond risk? Uh, can, can you tell someone who's not as smart how we can get beyond uh, risk factor medicine? Well, the issue is um, disease theories have become probabilistic, right? Rather mm-hmm. than deterministic. And let me read you a quote, not that I wrote, but um, I cite in the first, the last chapter of my risk factor book, and he says, Here, the most vital contribution to the risk epidemic 
has come from the development of scientific thinking itself. Within this thinking, there has been a movement from a paradigm of monocausal, monocausal determinism, that is bacteriology, towards a paradigm of multiple causes and effects, accepting uncertainty as a vital factor. And I think that's what the risk factor did. Right. <laughs> you know, that's but that's not my quote. Correct, and it uh, you're right, and there, there's a lot of it, it puts the the clinician in a, in a you know in a conundrum um, as to what to do. But what's interesting also that I, I I got from your book is that even infectious disease, because you start your book by putting the 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 question of pandemic in its broader context, and you use tuberculosis, lung cancer, coronary heart disease, and influenza, right, as as examples of yeah. pandemics. But even the ones that are, you know, in essence, monocausal, mono uh, like influenza and tuberculosis, do have pandemics. So there are obviously other factors that influence, you know, the rise and fall of these diseases. And tuberculosis was clearly on the decline way before we had antibiotics um, right. for it. And the usual explanations, just like for coronary disease, are not entirely satisfactory as to what caused the pandemic of tuberculosis, you know, in terms of uh, overcrowding and, and, and that sort of thing. Well, I give some data there that, that agrees with that. I show that if you look at TB mortality rates in Massachusetts and England, they declined from 1850 to 1900, okay? Mm -hmm. But infant mortality rates did not decline in either country. Mm -hmm. And our best evidence for the standard of living is infant mortality. Right, right. So, right. so the standard of living could not have caused a decrease in core and to TB mortality. Right. So my take-home message from all this is that you know we should be very, be very careful about uh, jumping to conclusions and then proceeding with, you know, health policy, public health mandates that end up affecting the clinicians because you know there is a lot of top-down uh, directing of the actions of physicians to treat risk factors and to do this and to make such and such recommendations as if we understood these pandemics. And, and it's very humbling that I think we, we really don't understand them very well. And, uh, and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see, uh, you know, doubt being uh, raised uh, about all these preconceived notions that we have. Yeah, no, yeah, no, skept uh, skepticism is, is a beautiful thing and uh, not accepting uh, whatever hype, uh, wherever it comes from is a great, wonderful thing. But but it, it, it's somewhat similar to the the, the, the climate change uh, uh, debate, you know, meaning uh, it seems like, uh, it seems, you know, regardless of whether or not we can predict the temperature uh, uh, 200 years from now or 300 years from now and what exactly that temperature change will do to climate levels and how, 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 how we can make that with a tremendous amount of, of, of certainty. Uh, it just seems like, um, uh, it seems like it may be a bad idea to mine, uh, you know, carbon that's finite and, and pump it into our uh, atmosphere. Uh, so uh, point being is that I don't necessarily have to have a deterministic model to know what exactly is gonna happen if we take all of Earth's carbon and pump it into the atmosphere to think that maybe we should do something to mitigate that, you know? So it, it, the same thing happens when it comes to trying to, you know, tell these individuals sitting 
in front of me in the clinic what to do and uh, you know and so if they're I mean, I still struggle to get beyond looking at the individual and saying, well, it seems like these are risky behaviors that you may Right, but, but right. I think the, the way to deal with that issue is that I, I yeah. think that in terms of it's healthy on other grounds to exercise. You don't have to invoke the right. change, change in, in coronary mortality to, mm. to, to prescribe exercise. No, but yeah. about cigarette smoking, it's healthy yeah. on other grounds, right? But you're making my right. yeah you're making my argument meaning it just seems like okay like we, meaning we don't exactly know how um, smoking will affect cardiovascular mortality but uh, uh, it it are we are we wrong to say that it could and it, and and there's a chance if there's a one if there's a chance that it could that we should we, we, you should stop smoking meaning uh, or you're saying we should stop smoking because you know you don't want to kiss somebody who's or <laughs> I don't know I don't you know one or the other smoking affects so many diseases that. Yeah. Coronary heart disease is peanuts compared to all the cancers that are increased by lung smoking, right? And respiratory diseases and all the rest. Um, right. Although, um, you know, it, to me, uh, it, it's hard to shake. I mean, it, it, I, I don't know. Sometimes, I mean, you know, you do as a clinician, we see the occasional person with really extensive atherosclerosis. Yeah. Who's who's a really, he's just a, a chain smoker and that's the only thing going with him or her. And it's hard for me not to, to, to put a cause to effect relationship. But at the same time, you're right that there are smokers who smoke, smoke a lot and don't have much, you know, coronary disease. Yeah, it's, uh, it's... I, I, I just, um, um, I think I, I sent you Bill and I, I put that on, on Twitter. There was a review recently by Bill Roberts, who's, you know, the, uh, the most prominent cardiac pathologist, you know, who's now in his, uh, I think mid or late eighties and, and who's had 50 years of experience. And he doesn't, doesn't think that, that smoking isn't the causal pathway towards atherosclerosis uh, himself. But nevertheless, I mean, Who I, I cares? think... cares? It, it affects so many other diseases. Correct. It You're right. right. That's right. I mean, in terms of, of whether we recommend it or not, I mean, I don't think that's, that matters. But in terms of, of the science of it, I think, Bill, is, is uh, you make a point. I mean, I think we need to be humble. And public health is frequently not that humble. <laughs> you know, they're frequently, uh, you know... Uh, uh, almost mythical in in what they uh, what they claim that we know. I agree completely. They, they just go overboard right. in their determination uh, to provide recommendations. Now, take a lot. You know, there have been a lot of studies showing that influenza immunization does not do any good. Mm -hmm. And um, and and so now I'm willing to buy it for nurses, you know, and other people who are really uh, in danger, but to immunize the whole world is just really unacceptable. Right. For influenza. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, the, this drive to, to do things on a massive scale, regardless of what the, the evidence is, you know, to support that uh, these kinds of positions. Bill, uh, I think we need to, to wrap it up here. It's been one really wonderful, very enlightening. Uh, I'm going to, again, the, the, the title of the book is The uh, Coronary Heart Disease Pandemic in the 20th Century, Emergence and Decline in Advanced Countries. Um, we'll put a link to it. It's available on Amazon, I take it? or Yes. Okay. And, uh, and thank you very much for, for joining right. us here. Could you send yes. me an email with the website and everything I so I can access this? Yes, definitely. And then if you have other links or documents you want to share, we put those on the show notes as well.
Okay. All right, I enjoyed this very much. It was a real play. Uh, the conflict between the probabilistic and the deterministic theories of medicine just uh, affected everything we've said, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much, Bill. All right, bye now. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.